each and every week, and we get to read from it, and it's a great mercy in our lives that we have God's Word for us. It was several years ago that we found out when we left our apartment uh, in Kentucky for a time of celebration of Christmas, and we came back to it a week or so later that we found out that there was a new guest living there. It was a mouse. We noticed after we left our candy bowl out that some of them had been seemed like unwrapped and missing. And we started to dig to the bottom of this and started to find out that something else was now occupying the space that we were occupying and was eating our food. Now, there was no way I was going to let that continue. First off, I mean, it's one thing if you're going to come into our space. That's something, right? Like, maybe I could endure that for a little bit. But then it's another thing, like, you start eating our food, especially our candy. Like, that's off limits, especially for mice. So there was no way I was going to let that continue. And what do you do if you have a mouse that's uh, occupying your space and eating your candy? You get ready to set a trap for it to take out its life. In a way, the Sanhedrin... The religious rulers and leaders of Jesus' time feel similar to that. They think Jesus has come into their space. This is Jerusalem, the city of God. This is the temple, the place where God's presence dwells. And you've come in here and you started turning over tables, driving people out, saying all sorts of stuff. And all sorts of people like you and are following you. You've upset our order. And so what do they do? They start setting traps different places. He stepped out of line. It wasn't just that he's occupying their space. Like they took it personally, like I did, like he's eating our candy. And so we're going to take him out. We're going to set traps for him. And this leads to what they do all through what we've seen in the last few chapters of Mark. We're going to find the right kind of place and, and the right kind of bait to make sure that we can ensnare Jesus in his words so that we can take him out. And they don't just set one trap, they're going to set many traps. Wave after wave, they're going to send to Jesus in order they might somehow catch him in his words and take him down, that he might fall and lead to his demise and their good living. Well, since the temple clearing, Jesus has been facing this, the Sanhedrin, the, the, those who had been in charge of the temple and the religious elite, the religious rulers, they kept confronting Jesus. They questioned his authority. And now chapter 12, they send somebody on their behalf. Look at verse 13. They sent, and I think that it's given the context, likely to consider that they there is the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. They sent this group to them. They sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. I don't know if you remember, but back in chapter 3, when Jesus was in another synagogue, he was there and he was going to heal a man with a withered hand. And there was a group that didn't want this to happen, a group of, of Pharisees. And Jesus goes ahead and heals the man with a withered hand, but after he does that, the Pharisees get with the Herodians at that time in chapter 3 to take out Jesus. They start plotting against him and how they can murder him. So they already don't like him, but they were sent with a purpose, sent In chapter 11, verse 18, we read the purpose for the Sanhedrin was after the chief priests, the scribes, they they heard all this about Jesus clearing the temple, and he says, I don't want my house to be called a, uh, to be a den of robbers. And here's what they were doing. They were seeking a way to destroy him, some way. So we'll find a way, and we'll send people out. In chapter 12, verse 12, it says again, they were seeking to arrest him. 
Here they send a group that's seeking to trap him in his talk. Now, obviously, their desire to be rid of Jesus is very strong because every trap that they've set for Jesus, the waves that have run against Jesus to try to bring him down have been roundly defeated by Jesus. I mean, they leave marveling and just incredulous of what has happened. If you remember chapter 3 when Jesus was in front of the Pharisees in that synagogue and he asked this question, right, is it right to do good, to heal on the Sabbath? And of course, they don't say a word because they know in a sense like now we're in a corner. And they were beat. In chapter 10, they came to him and they asked him this question that they thought was a perplexing question, right? Harry, what about divorce? What about the law of Moses and divorce? Thinking maybe we can get Jesus trapped here. And what does he do? He upholds not only the goodness of God's law, but the goodness of marriage and in sense like draws out their wicked sinful hearts. In chapter 11, verse 29, they come to him and they ask him a question about the baptism of John, and he asks them a question, saying, I'm going to ask you a question, and you tell me. And they say, we don't know. Over and over again, Jesus has faced the onslaught of their, their traps, and he's defeated them handily each time. They haven't even come close to trapping him, but they're relentless in their pursuits. They're relentless in his demise. They want to bring him down. They'll do anything, and they'll send wave after wave. It's just an indicator of their hard, blind hearts that are coming after Jesus. And the saddest part of that is, is that these are Israel's religious leaders. These are the men that are supposed to be leading them toward faithfulness in God, to walking rightly before him, to, to loving the things that God loves. Instead, they're coming against Jesus. And their constant attacks here at the end of Jesus' life since to validate what Jesus said when he saw the crowds in chapter 6 and he was going to feed them. He says they're like sheep without a shepherd. Indeed, they were like sheep without a shepherd. It validates Jesus when he goes to the temple. You remember that he curses the fig tree because it doesn't have any figs on it. And then he goes in and clears out the temple and he comes back and the tree is withered. I mean, that was a statement on Israel's religious leaders in the temple. The life there is withered all the way down. Kind of validates what he has been saying and doing in the judgment that he pronounced in that. They have hard, blind hearts. And this group that the Sanhedrin sends, it's a strange pairing of, of Herodians and Pharisees. Now, Herodians were Jewish. They were supporters of not only Roman rule, they were pro-Roman, but they were also pro-Herodian dynasty. They were fine with it. They were backing Herod and his lineage most of them were wealthy, and they supported those who were in power at the time. Now, the Pharisees were different. The Pharisees, as you know, had the, the, they were characterized by strict adherence to the Old Testament. They cared deeply about the, the law of Moses. They were those who wanted religious purity. This is why we see this interaction with Jesus in chapter 7 about them confronting him over the hand washing and his disciples eat without washed hands. They were sincerely concerned about religious purity. They, they wanted to make sure that everybody observed the oral tradition of the law passed down. And so they held that up, as we heard in chapter 7 as well, along with the Old Testament law. And so we have these two groups that, that are sent to Jesus, and they're not exactly on the same page with the direction that they want to go with Israel, I'm sure. On one hand, you have the Herodians that would have been, in a sense, the, the compromisers. Like, okay, we, like we've got Herod and Roman power, let's just just stay behind them. And then on the other hand, you have the Pharisees, that they're the hardliners. We're going to take the law all the way down to the letter, and we're going to live this out. And so they, 
they're not exactly on the same page, but you know the old saying, they have a common enemy, and if you're the enemy of my enemy, then, then you're my friend, or something like that is going on here. So they approach Jesus. And what's interesting is that they don't come together to get a win from Jesus for their side. It's not as if this is an intramural debate where like, all right, decide between us. So Herodians over here, Pharisees, they're not trying to get a win for their side. They're trying to trap Jesus. That's their main goal. They don't want their camp's advancement so much as they want Jesus' downfall. Mark makes that abundantly clear. And so think about Jesus' last full week of ministry here. It's full. It's full of approaches from sinful men trying to bring him down. And think of the constant traps that he's faced with over and over again about how everybody that seems to come to him just wants him to die, wants him to get out of their lives. That's what they desire from him, and this is his last week of life. Truly the words of Isaiah 53 are are true, that Jesus was a man who was despised and rejected by men. That wasn't just a statement on one part of his life, but that that is Jesus' life. And here in the last week, like, that's what he faces. Like, in the last week of our life, we might picture, like, oh, let's let's go to a beach and let's enjoy the the beautiful scenery. And Jesus goes to Jerusalem, to the temple, and he, he enjoys wave after wave of people that want to kill him. In verse 14... Here's what they say to him. Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, Mark has been careful up to this point to make sure that he's exposed their motives prior to this conversation to help everyone see their question and Jesus' answer rightly. Right? He's exposing them. Because they are more devoted to trapping him than actually hearing an answer of this question. And more is devoted from Mark to their motive than to the question and answer itself, right? There's not much there. Jesus' answer is pretty short. That's telling. I mean, Mark is trying to frame this in a certain way for us that we would see it. And these teachers, they come, and here's what they do. They're going to they're gonna sing Jesus' praises to him. They're going to tout him. Hey, look at you. You're this great teacher, Hey, we, we know that you're truthful, that you don't show favoritism. You're going to tell the truth. You're going to be honest, that you're going to not be swayed by, by the opinion and appearance of others. We, we know that to be true of you. And that seems like maybe they're just, you know, flattery before they kind of bring him down or that's what they're trying to do. But I think that even in the way that they're saying this, they're trying to corner Jesus even further. You're not going to be swayed, right? You're going to tell us what's truthful, right? And so they're trying to force him in further and further into their trap. The question in and of itself has quite a bit of freight behind it. I mean, there's, there's a, a weightiness to their question. Israel, in its past, in the Old Testament, you read of Israel, Israel was a theocracy. It's, it's a, a nation state ruled by God. They weren't to have other rulers, right? They had kings and prophets and priests that were to help them walk in faithfulness to their ruler who was God. But in the course of their history, because of their sin, they are not in control, Right, we know of their, their exiles that were in the Old Testament, but here we also know that, that at this point in time, the, the Romans have taken over most of the known world. And at 37 BC, Rome took over control of Israel, and in 6 AD, that's when they started imposing taxes. So it wasn't long before they started saying, like, we're going to get what we own, and we're going to require taxes of the Jewish people. So Israel was to be a nation that was to be ruled by God, ruled by his law, but now they're subjugated to Roman rule, including taxes. So if they say you have to pay taxes, then that's what they have to do. 
And so the question has quite a bit of freight behind it for all the people involved in this scene. And the question is this, is if it is lawful, is it lawful that we should do this? That's the question. You see the spiritual kind of import in that. And if they should pay taxes, and if it's lawful to pay taxes, is, is a touchy question. And full of landmines, full of differing opinions. I'll give you one. The zealots were a group of the time. Zealots were those who thought, let's overthrow the government. They refused to pay taxes. They were rebels, in a sense, to the Romans. Now, the, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they, they may be on the same page here. They may be a little bit differing in, in their view of if it's lawful to pay taxes or not. But surely they have different interests in this question. And I think one commentator sums it up well for us. He says, in asking if it was allowed by the law of God to pay the tribute money, it could be assumed that the Pharisees were concerned chiefly in the moral and religious implications of the question, and the Herodians with its political and nationalistic ramifications. All right, so they each kind of have a little bit of different desire in this, but Mark wants us to see even those are underneath what? Their desire to take Jesus down, their desire to trap Jesus. Their primary concern wasn't Jesus' answer, but somehow getting him to where he can't get out and they could bring him down. That's their concern. So they, they may want to hear an answer, but they mostly want to bring Jesus down, take him out. And so they try to bait Jesus with a question that seems to be, it's either yes or no. And there's really no else to go to this. It's, it's a yes or no. And they know that this is, in a sense, like it's going to corner Jesus and make him unpopular with some people or another. If he gives a yes answer, clearly that wouldn't have been a popular answer amongst the people. They don't want to pay taxes to these Romans. They don't want to give some of their money away to that cause. So it would have discredited him with the people. He would have had less popularity, and we've seen over and over from the Sanhedrin that he does have some popularity at the time. There are people that like what Jesus is doing. And so if he says yes, then probably he'll have less popularity with them. But if he says no then all of a sudden that he could have all sorts of ramifications come against him from the Romans, those who rule. Because all of a sudden he could be charged of what? Treason. Like, no, we don't, we don't pay taxes to Romans. The Romans might take interest in that. Someone who possibly could be a leader and stir things up and says, yeah, we're going to overthrow them. They would take notice. And so the question has been carefully crafted to push Jesus into, in a sense, a no-win situation, to back him into a corner, to brand him in a specific way so that in one way or another, someone's not going to like him and they can finally get their opportunity to take Jesus out. And so they feign wanting to know the way of God when in actuality, all along the way, they're trying to seek his demise. And their approach to Jesus is evil. But I wonder... I wonder if we're not too different in our approach to God at times. I wonder if we may not seek Jesus' destruction, but we may approach God similarly. Why do we ask questions to God? Why do we approach God? How do we approach God? You see, we, we may too want to approach God and bring questions to God, even hard questions we want to know about, but oftentimes, not so much to know his way of doing things, but to really get our desired end. Isn't that our, their approach? They say, we want to know the way of God. They're approaching him so they might know his way, but really the end desire is that they get what they want, if that's his answer or not. Many simply call this prayer. They don't approach God to really find out something other than if he gives a, an approval of what we actually want in the first place. 
And the first mistake in this and in the first mistake in their approach is that they fail to come to Jesus just for who he is, as Jesus, to see him as the gift, the treasure himself. And the biggest mistake the Pharisees and the Herodians have is that they miss Jesus. They're approaching the Son of God. And they approach to bring him down rather than seeing him rightly. But do we make that same error? Do we approach, do we bring questions and our prayers to God, making our primary motive and the why we're doing this to know that we get God? Like, is our primary motivation for prayer is that we get access to God, that we get Him? Or do we want something from Him? And maybe that's a good thing, maybe it's an evil thing, theirs is evil, but in the end, aren't we kind of falling in line with the same kind of sinful approach to God? Their approach to Jesus shows how far off they are. They're blinded to who he really is, and so they approach not to adore him and worship him as he deserves, but to bring him down as they desire. But Jesus is not off, and in his interaction with them, we could learn a lot. He, he knows what's coming. In chapter 2, you remember they, there were some friends that brought a paralytic to Jesus, and they lowered him down, and he said, your sins are forgiven. And immediately the questions start going and the, the religious elite at the, that were there, they start, well, how can someone forgive sins on earth? You know, the only person that can forgive sin is God. Jesus knew their heart and then he responds in turn. He does something similar here. He, he knows what's going on. He knows that they're trying to trap him. And so listen to his response in verse 15. Knowing their hypocrisy, that is their hypocrisy, they're, they're wearing a mask, they're acting like they say we're after the way of God. We want to know the answer to this question, but really we want you dead. Their hypocrisy. And the Son of God was under constant heat and pressure from hypocrites, actors, those who want him gone. I mean, think about it. If you are experienced at a time when you're like, it seems like everything is coming at me, then you have one in Jesus who you can identify with. Or rather, he can identify with you. He's under constant heat, constant pressure, pressed on all sides. You ever felt like that? Like maybe you're living in a fishbowl where people are just constantly watching you to find some sort of flaw so that they can take you out. And Jesus knows that. That's his last week of his life. That's, he's living in that. And he knows their hypocrisy and he owes them nothing. He doesn't owe them an answer. He doesn't have to give them anything. And yet after the constant pressure that he's faced from hypocrites with evil motives, here's what Jesus says, verse 15. He says, why do you put me to the test? Why? Think of the grace of this question. Jesus doesn't know their hypocrisy and yell at them in anger. That may be my response. Or stomp away and say, I've had enough. I've already dealt with you guys multiple times throughout my ministry. I've told you the truth. I've been playing with it all along. Forget it. Doesn't do either of those things. He says, why? He gives another gracious opportunity for them to reflect, that they might see their sin. They might see their own wickedness to turn to him, not to test him, but to learn from him, to know him, to see him for who he is. Why do you put me to the test? Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't have an answer. He, he's not stumped or stalling, like, let me, why do you even ask me that? And while well, he's thinking up an answer in his head. It's not what's going on. Listen to the rest of verse 15. He says, bring me a denarius. And let me look at it. 
And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Well, Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marvel at him. Right, the, the brevity of this answer is amazing in and of itself. But the brevity can, can mix with the, the intense depth to this answer is just amazing. And they didn't miss it. See the end? They, they marveled. And in just a short amount of words, Jesus just cuts it all down with great brevity and great depth. Jesus asked for denarius. And he says, well, whose likeness is on it? And the denarius would have had the likeness and inscription of Caesar on it. And he simply says to them, give to Caesar the, the things that are Caesar's. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. In other words, in this answer, Jesus is acknowledging the legitimacy of Caesar's authority. And he says, give him his things. Give Caesar's the things that are his. He's acknowledging the legitimacy of government, even a, a really not a great one. He couldn't have thought highly of the Romans. They were very imperfect. But he acknowledges their legitimacy and their authority. And in this answer of rendering Caesar the things that are Caesar's, he, he puts distance between himself and, say, like the zealots who said, no, we're not paying taxes to Caesar. We're not submitting to that government. They wanted to overthrow it. Jesus kind of distances that, right? But he doesn't then become in a category that's, that's someone else's camp. He kind of makes his own camp. He doesn't say, you know what, we're going to reestablish the theocracy that has been lost because of your sin. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to fix all these problems. We're, we are going to, we're going to get this temple right. No, he pronounced judgment on that temple. Oh, we're going to put, I'm going to sit on the throne and we're going to overthrow their reign and their rule. He doesn't say that either. He says, render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's. He affirms, in other words, that God's people can live under human authority. Apparently, it's no threat for the Jews to obey the Romans. It's no threat to God's authority and reign and rule. In other words, it's, it's no threat for people, any person, to live under the authority of government. That's not a threat to faith in God, to submitting to God's authority. There's congruence between obeying the governing authorities and worship of the one true living God. I mean, think about the context, right? In the context of the fig tree, where he's pronounced judgment on the religious leaders and the temple and what they're doing there, and the vineyard, where he talks to the religious leaders and they think, hey, we were the ones that had some authority in this vineyard, and he speaks against us and judgment against us. In that kind of context, we can see that Jesus is doing something pretty profound here with this answer and saying, render to Caesar's things that are Caesar's. He's forming something new. He is forming a new community of God's people, not one that is going to go to the temple and sacrifice for sin or seize power on some sort of earthly throne from Rome. The Old Testament's arrangement of things was coming to an end. Jesus is bringing it to an end, and a new community is forming. And the beauty of this new community that Jesus is forming is that now he's now just freed all nations up to be a part of this. 
You no longer have to be Israelite now. He's just opened the door saying, now you can obey these other governments and have faith in God. Instead, there's this new community that's forming that's a transnational, transcultural people that finds they're all in Jesus. That's the kind of community Jesus is forming. You need a king, Jesus is your king. You need a a priest, Jesus is your sacrifice, your priest. He's your temple. It's it's a transcultural, transnational community that's going to find they're all in Jesus. We're not setting up the theocracy again. We're finding everything in Christ. It can include, then, the disciples that Jesus had, like Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector, who would have been on opposite ends of the spectrum politically, but Jesus brings them together in himself because they're finding everything in him. That's the kind of community Jesus is establishing and forming. Now, Jesus doesn't elaborate. We we likely wish that he would. But here's what we get from Jesus is we we have his disciples. We have a a record of, of how they thought this should be carried out. And so we read places like Romans 13. This is the, the Apostle Paul establishing churches and giving them foundational teaching for them to live life on. Here's what he says about submission to authorities. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Like this is the Apostle Paul carrying out, giving a little bit more detail to Jesus' answer of rending to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Peter does something similar. If you look in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, who is wicked and sinful, by the way. Or to governors who were also the same, as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, living as servants, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Interesting words from a man who was going to be, we think, killed by an emperor. He says, honor the emperor. It's profound. And that's how he said, not only himself, but for the churches to carry out the things that Jesus taught. So for those who trust and follow Jesus, there are then legitimate human authorities that are to be obeyed. Legitimate governing authorities. So the the tax date has gotten pushed back to July 15th. It's coming up, right? Submit to that. That, There's a due date, right? We're to pay those taxes and to submit to the governing authorities. In other words, it's not inconsistent with faith in Jesus to submit to human authority, to submit to the government. Those are not inconsistent things. In fact, we should know this in all sorts of ways, right? We're not inconsistent when we submit to all sorts of human authorities and in submission to God, right? Children, obey your parents. Submit to your parents. There's, There's one way that children who, who love God, you can have faith in God and submit to authorities in your life. Obey your parents. Wives, submit to your husbands. 
Church, submit to your leaders. Everybody, submit to Christ. Those are not inconsistent statements. All of them are statements in line with faith in Jesus. They're not in violation of the authority of God or incongruent with the worship of God. And so Jesus' answer, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, is a big answer. Great brevity, great depth. And yet, Jesus' answer contained a second detail that must not be missed. Verse 16 After they brought him a denarius, and he says to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Well, render Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. He says, Give Caesar his things and and give God his things. And so we can can take this. It seems like there's there's two categories that Jesus is creating, right? He's creating the, the God category and the Caesar category. The human category, the government category. And I think one author says it rightly when he says, when we see these, too often, however, Christians interpret Jesus' words about rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God's what is God's, as if Caesar was somehow outside of God's jurisdiction. They envision two separate circles, one for Caesar's things, one's for God's things. All right, and he gives a picture of this life found helpful. This is how we often, we can look at it this way. We're like, okay, we have Caesar's things over here in this circle, and we have God's things over here in this circle, right? You've got Caesar's, got these you know, politics, government, that's a separate circle. Over here, we have faith, worship, we have what, how we live our life, and we do that separately. Those are separate things, separate circles. But I want us to notice something about what Jesus says. Jesus asks a strange question when he gets to the denarius, doesn't he? He says, whose likeness on it? Of course the likeness was, was Caesar's likeness, right? That's what they would all do. Like, let's put our likeness on the coin so everyone knows we're the ruler, and you paid us. But let's go a little bit further. Yes, whose likeness was on the coin? Caesar's, that's true, that's right. Whose likeness is Caesar? Whose image does he bear? We know the answer to this, right? In Genesis 1, 26, that God made man in his image. So render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's. Render to God's the things that are God's. And Caesar was made in whose image? God's image. Now Jesus was not trying to give. Here's two categories. We got one over here. That's the Caesar category. And one over here, the God category. As if they're, they're private domains. As if there's a separation between our faith and government, politics, anything else. Instead, one author says this. Jesus famous utterance means that God always trumps Caesar. We may be obligated to pay taxes to Caesar, but we owe everything, our very being, to God. It's more like this picture, which he also included, that we have Caesar's things and engulfed and encircled by God's things. So Jesus is not leaving room for his people to have politics over here and God over here. Faith over here and then government over here. Job over here, faith over here. Social life over here, faith over here. As if there's some sort of private and separate categories that may occasionally leak into each other or overlap, but that really aren't the same. One author says this, he continues, whatever civil obligations Jesus' followers might have, they must be understood within the context of their responsibilities to God. For their duty to God claims their whole selves, all of them, all of us. So the most essential obligation for every single person is to submit themselves fully to God. 
Human beings are never to have this dilemma of where my first allegiance should be. You were made in the image of God. Your first allegiance, in one sense, like the, the whole allegiance of your entire life, body, breath, belongs to God. It's his. He formed it. And Jesus says, render to God the things that are God's. What's God's? Psalm 24.1 gives us a really good comprehensive picture of what's God's. He says, well, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In case you're like, if earth wasn't good enough, the fullness of the earth and the world and those who dwell within the world. In other words, God owns everything. It's all his. The world and those who dwell in it, they're all his. Render to God the things that are God's. And what's his? Everything and everyone. You are and I am. We're all God's. And so Jesus' answer to the Pharisees, to the Herodians, to, to the citizens of Enid, to every single human being, is to give God what's his. And what's his? Everything. He made us. We are formed in his image to bear his likeness on the earth that he created, to reflect his character, his nature on the earth. We are to reflect him like a mirror. We see his character, his attributes, his nature, and we're to be like that on the earth, to be like God. We bear his image and likeness. We belong to him by order of creation. And so when we speak of God as Father, there's more to it than this, but there's not less than saying that he made us. He is our Father by creation. So that begs the question of every single human being. Are we giving ourselves to him? Do we belong to him? And we do, but are we submitting to him? And Jesus' gracious call here is to say, give your everything, give all that you are to God himself. In other words, Jesus is saying, like, this is what we desire, this is what God wants. Give yourself to me. Everything belongs to me. He wants us. How, how clearly is that seen in Jesus' coming after humanity that had rejected and rebelled against the God that created it? He came. He faced them. He lived among them. He was despised and rejected by people that bore his image. And he died. He's displaying his desire for you to give everything to God. I want this so badly that I come after you in love. I die for you because of my love for you. So in a sense, for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, we could say that he has come to make us doubly his. First, by creation, but because of our sin, we have gone away from that. We're slaves, and instead of living rightly in the image of God, we have this broken image that we sometimes bear, but we're slaves to sin, and we, we can't bear the image that we are made for. And he came to set us free so that we could be fully his once again, so that we could have that image of God restored in us, first by creation and now second by redemption. In Jesus, we know what 1 Corinthians 6 says is now true of us. He says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. He, he not only made us and we are his own in that sense, but now we're bought with the precious blood of Jesus and our very bodies, all of us, is no longer ours. It does not belong to us anymore. We are bought with a price. And so what's the conclusion? Honor God. Amen. Honor God then. 
In other words, give all of yourself to him. Let everything be done to give glory to him because you belong to him by creation and by redemption you belong to him. Believer, he bought you. Don't let your life be put into separate categories where I have my God things over here and everything else or whatever I want to put over here and keep them in separate categories. You were bought. Honor God with everything that you are and all that you have. It all belongs to him. You were bought with a price. Honor God with everything. If you're not a believer, if you're not a believer, know that Jesus died that you might find your all in him. That you'd quit seeking to try to find all of your identity in being something, a citizen of somewhere, empty pursuit. He died that you might find your all in him. And he says, come wholly to me. Give all of yourself to me. Lose your life now, find it in me, and you'll actually find it. As we see Jesus' response, it's, it's obvious, right? Jesus, the Son of God, will not be trapped. The attempts keep coming, and they wave after wave come after Jesus, and they think that they trap him. He finally says something, they think, ah, let's crucify him. Hear what he has said. But Jesus won't be trapped. Remember the words of John chapter 10? Yeah, Jesus, we know, is going to the cross. We know he's going to die. But here's what he says. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down. He has authority to the very end. So that, so that he could form a new community of people who give themselves wholly to him. If you've trusted in Jesus, you're part of this community. And as a reminder of Jesus giving himself wholly to you and you giving yourself wholly to him, he tells us, let's remember this by taking this memorial meal called the Lord's Supper. We're reminded of Jesus' body that was broken, blood was poured out so that we might be part of his new people that he's forming by our faith in him. So if you've repented of your sins and put your faith wholly in Jesus, if you have said and are confessing by faith even now, I want to give all of myself to you, then we say come and take this meal and be reminded of what Jesus has done to make you his own. Be reminded that you're not your own, but you've been bought with a price, so therefore honor God. If you're not a believer, we would ask, don't take this meal, please. It's okay to stay seated. We'd instead rather you believe in Jesus. Take him. Trust in him. If you don't know what that looks like, please find a believer and ask questions. Go to the scripture. Start reading. See who this Jesus is and what he's like. But if you're believers, we, we, we encourage you, come and take and be encouraged by what Jesus has done on your behalf and how he's formed a, a new community of people who are trying to render God's what is God's. And they are saying, we all belong to God. And so, again, we orderly in a way to do this. I go from the back to the front and I encourage you again, just, just stick out your hand and they'll drop a piece of bread in there and be reminded of, of Jesus' body that was broken. Take a cup and be reminded of his blood that was poured out so that we might be forgiven. Or be reminded of those sacred things during this meal. Let's bow in prayer together. God, you know just what we need to hear from your word and when we need it. And you have, by your sovereign hand, uh, on the day after we celebrate our citizenship and our country and celebrate being Americans, 
you challenge us in your word that our primary citizenship is in heaven. And we separate those spheres sometimes. We act like there are parts of our lives that have nothing to do with your rule and your power. And we get lost when we think about politics and laws and presidents and courts and all of those things, we can very quickly think and act as if you are not the king of the universe and as if we can actually put our hope in human beings. That's not Christianity. It's foolishness and we are guilty of it Every time we panic, every time we gripe and moan and act like we're miserable and we turn to your word and we hear men who will have their heads removed and who will be hung on a cross upside down tell us to submit to the governing authorities that are put there by God to take care of you. God, purify our hearts. That's what we're supposed to do before we take the Lord's Supper, we are to own our sin and remember that when you shed your blood and when your body was broken, it was because we are sinful. So will you show us those places in our hearts that even though you bought us with your blood, even though we belong to you, there are places where practically we don't. Show us those things, Lord. Make us hate the false hope in our hearts that we place in anything other than you. Whether it's leaders, power, money, popularity, being on the winning side, all of those things, God, I pray that we would die to that and that we would live to you. The God who is the judge of the universe, Jesus, you are not only our great rescuer, but you are the judge, and we will all stand before you one day and give an account. And God, I pray everyone in this room is ready for that day because they have put their trust in your shed blood for their sin. If there are those without faith today, will you grant them faith and repentance, God? Will you cause them in their hearts to hate their sin and give up controlling their own lives and surrender that to you, God. Purify our hearts, Jesus. We belong to you. Thank you so much for pursuing us and for when you come to dwell within us, you don't leave and our sin doesn't chase you away, but you will be faithful to complete the work that you started and you will make us from one degree into another more and more into your image Jesus we praise you Holy Spirit thank you for dwelling within us and for not leaving until the work is finished and we die and are raised from the dead and live with you forever I can't wait for that day but until you come back, 
pray that we would be people of hope. That our faith would be strong and that we would always keep our eyes on you and keep our eyes on the end, knowing that you will return, you will fix everything that is broken, you will punish the wicked, and that should be all of us, but it won't be Jesus because of what we remember today, your death in our place. We praise you with this act of worship today. Amen.